We put different values on things in this life. Some things matter more to us than others. Some people matter more to us than others. Jesus values his own children so much that he gave his life for them. And this morning we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. We're going to be looking at two particular points here in this text. Number one, an important reminder, verse one. And number two, an incredible sacrifice, verse two. Number one, an important reminder, verse one. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. My little children, John here is gently trying to remind these fellow believers that he's been pointing this out so that they do not develop patterns of sin in their walk with God. John would be reminding us this morning, if he was writing this letter to us, that he's writing this so that we don't develop these patterns of sin in our lives. These willful acts of disobedience to what God has clearly revealed. His points on God being holy, light, and our being sinful, full of darkness, should be a reminder to us to stay away from sin. We must have fellowship with God on his terms and not ours, as we discussed. God being separate should always be a reminder to us that we ought to be separate from the darkness we were rescued from. Unfortunately, so many of us like to go back. We like to go back to the very thing we supposedly escaped. We need to be constantly reminded that we have to strive for holiness. The Christian life believer is not to be lived on autopilot. There is no autopilot switch to your Christian life. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians believe that that's how it works. They live off of their emotions, their experiences, and the Word of God, by default, becomes a non-standard in their life. We have to stop living as if we don't sin by never confessing our sins before God. You see, most people, if you were to ask, are you a sinner, they'd say, yes, I am. But if you were to watch how they live their life, they would act as if they don't. Confession of sin is not a normal occurrence in their life. Let me ask you, believer, and I'm being sincere when I ask this. When you pray, do you pray with confession of sin as a priority? Or is every prayer a request and a give me from God? You see, we can say that we believe that we're sinners, but the way we pray will many times dictate how much we believe that. The way we approach our Heavenly Father will dictate whether we believe we've actually sinned. It would be the equivalent of you having a relationship with your spouse and you've done something to offend them and you pretend nothing's happened. How does that normally work out? You just let it slide? You think that never plays a role later on in your relationship? 
Unfortunately, many believers have walked that way with God for a while. Confession of sin is not normal with them and God. In fact, it's abnormal. It's almost very rare that they confess. And the question is why? Why do we take it so lightly that we've sinned? Why do we act as if we haven't, even though we readily would admit we're sinning? Because we don't follow what God says. We have to stop living as if we don't sin by never confessing our sins. The serious nature of sin should lead us to confession before God and realization that Christ has always been and still remains our only remedy. Did you know that? Jesus was not just your remedy initially upon saving faith. He's still your remedy today. Stop assuming eternity is stamped on my heart and I don't need him anymore. Don't take salvation so flippantly, believer. John is writing these warnings because he wants them to wake up from spiritual slumber. Many a believer is asleep spiritually because they haven't dealt with sin on a root level in some time. In fact, I would, I would argue that many of us have let the tree of sin grow. And those sins are different for all of us, aren't they? So many of us are kind of cutting some of the branches off, but we don't want to go back to the root. That's too much work. It's too much effort. We want it to kind of automatically work itself out. Oh, we say we're sorry flippantly, but we don't value the blood of Christ enough to realize the role he still plays in our relationship with the Heavenly Father. What a heartbreaking situation to know that so many followers of Christ are living lives disregarding the very things he came to save them from. What a truth for all of us to realize that as John writes here, so that we may not sin. John knows you're going to sin because John himself sinned. But he's writing these things so that we don't develop patterns of sin that we go without ever bringing before God. We have an advocate or a helper. The term is used for the Holy Spirit who pleads on our behalf before the Father. Jesus is advocating for us because he's already paid for us. Oh, you and I are not innocent. We're just not guilty because of what Jesus has done. He's the one that was innocent. And his righteousness is placed on our account. The wrath of the Father has already been removed once and for all. Let's read a portion of Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Those who would one day come to faith in John 17, verses 14 through 23. This is Jesus' prayer specifically for those who would one day believe. And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, 
I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Here's where we come in. I do not pray for these alone, that is the disciples that were there with Jesus, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This is Jesus' prayer for his disciples there and for those who would one day believe. And in his prayer, he is asking for unity of believers as he has union with the Father. And he's asking specifically for God to do certain things in his disciples' lives. That he would keep them from the evil one. That he would sanctify them by the word. If you want to live close to what God wants, you need to be in his word. You will never follow God faithfully apart from his word. It's impossible to do. The sanctification is literally a prayer of Jesus that God uses the word in your life to sanctify you. Any believer that believes the word of God is not important, but they want to follow Jesus is literally completely blaspheming what Jesus is going after. They're, they're putting themselves in Christ's authority. And the Jesus that they follow is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus has prayed before the Father on behalf of his children, and he still advocates for them even today. I want you to pause for a moment and think, this morning, Jesus is pleading on your behalf as a child. Not that he's just thinking of you, which those are great sentimental thoughts that a lot of us hear on the Christian radio, right? He's thinking about me. Those are good thoughts. But Jesus is advocating for us. He's pleading before the Father on our behalf. Not salvifically, we already have salvation. But he's saying, this one's mine. I've paid for this one. Father, I know they're not living up to what they ought to. But I've covered their sin. That should humble us. Jesus offers a defense for his own who sin still. Including disciples such as Peter who went against the will of the Father, didn't he? 
and trying to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. Isn't it amazing that Jesus makes the statement that I've prayed for you? Let's discuss this sacrifice that was necessary on the cross and what it exactly accomplished. Number two, an incredible sacrifice. Verse two. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He himself, Jesus himself, alone, exclusive, the only one capable is the propitiation for our sins. And not just for our sins, but also for the whole world. We'll begin by defining the term propitiation and get to what is meant by the whole world. Propitiation means to appease or satisfy. Jesus himself became the sacrifice which was offered to satisfy the demand for sin's punishment. Further on in the book, John reemphasizes this point in 1 John 4, verse 10. Here's what it says. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So if we're to take the verse as stated that Jesus is the satisfaction or appeasement to the Father's wrath to be poured out on sin particularly for those in the audience that John is writing to. Then what do we mean by the phrase the whole world? Before we try to better understand this phrase, I think it's important to note that John does use a similar phrasing later on in the book to describe the influence of Satan. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, here's what it says. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Is John essentially teaching universalism in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2? That Jesus satisfies on behalf of every man's sin without exception. No. Because that would clearly contradict other texts of Scripture which explicitly state that those that reject will face judgment. In fact, you see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. 
Universalism does not apply in 1 John chapter 2. There are three main views on this text. And the extent of the atonement which have been held throughout church history. Many who we would consider orthodox in their faith, their fellow believers. Universalism falls outside of this purview. The three main views would be, number one, the Arminian view. The key word is obtained. Christ's death obtained salvation for all men. This means that every person has the inherent ability to respond to the gospel and make effective what has already been accomplished. Unfortunately, this kind of rubs against the doctrine of total depravity. The second view is what you'd call the high Calvinist view. The key word here is secured. Christ's death secured salvation for the elect. The cross thus saves Theoretically, the elect have to do nothing. And number three, the balanced Calvinist view. The key word is provision. Christ's work is applied only to those who believe, but its provision reaches throughout the human race. Christ died for everyone and is applied the moment they believe. This would be sufficient for all, efficient only for the elect. So which one is correct based on this text? One of the most important things is interpreting scripture is making sure that we do our best to let scripture speak for itself and not read our own theological text book answer in. Great men like Spurgeon struggled with the concept of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility when it comes to areas of salvation. Listen to what Spurgeon says. That God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. Simply put, for the Jewish mind, if you were to ask this question, is man responsible is God sovereign? They would just simply answer yes. For many of us, we like to dig through all of that to find out precisely where what is actuated, right? As we saw previously in the book of 1 John, God has spoken light into our hearts, right? He's, he shined in our hearts to give us the glorious truth of the gospel. God always initiates. Let's take a look at passages that could help us clear up what is probably in view here. Okay, In Matthew 26, because we're specifically going to look at the phrase whole world. Okay, Whole world. 
In Matthew 26, we read about the woman breaking the perfume to anoint Jesus' feet. And Jesus makes a statement in verse 13 where he says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Whenever the gospel or the good news of the death of Christ is preached throughout the whole world, throughout the nations, what this woman did will be written down for others to recall. She understood the significance of Jesus before the disciples even did. Which is why she anointed him. The whole world is used in reference to the specific places the gospel is preached. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, here's what it says. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Jesus promises the church of Philadelphia that they would be recognized as true followers of God and that they would be kept from the testing that would come on the whole world, which they're not a part of. The whole world is not in reference for those, to those that are faithful here, but everyone else. Context matters in how you use the phrase, the whole world. Because we see clearly that there's still limitation, even in these other texts, of what the whole world refers to. If God is promising the church of Philadelphia that something's coming on the whole world, but you're not a part of that, they're not a part of the whole world there. So back in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we mentioned it earlier. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I believe what John is doing here is something similar in mind, excluding the audience he is writing to who are of God. Because they're not under the sway of the wicked one. The rest of the world is. So how are we to interpret 1 John 2.2? How are we to interpret this text? I believe the only way we can interpret it is how we interpret the other ones in its context. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world's. If we cannot take it to mean everyone indiscriminately as we couldn't with the other texts, we can't hear as well. The whole world here can only be in reference to others that believe. Because that is the audience that John is speaking to. And those that will believe. 
believers. And the reason that is true is because John would run into a contradiction with Jesus himself in John chapter 17. In fact, let's turn there. John chapter 17, where Jesus prays for his own disciples and not the world. John chapter 17, the beginning portion of the prayer, in verses 6 through 11. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Look at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I, came, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Jesus makes a distinction for whom he's praying for. Jesus was given his children by the Father. And he prays specifically for them. The Father gave the Son those who would be his. In fact, what's amazing in all of this controversy regarding what is meant by 1 John 2.2 in the whole world there's almost a direct parallel that's stated in 1 John 2.2, which links to what we've been discussing in another text of Scripture. In fact, it's after Lazarus is raised from the dead, there is a discussion that goes on between the Pharisees and what is to be done with Jesus and his incredible following that he now has. In John chapter 11, verses 45 through 52, here's what we read. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. There's a very 
similar construction to what is stated in 1 John chapter 2. Instruction is very similar in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and John 11, 51 and 52. By the way, the author is John of both books. He would not contradict his own writing. Which is significant. He would not contradict similar thoughts. So I want you to notice some phrases here, okay? This is where being a student of the word is so important. He is the propitiation for our sins. You see that in 1 John chapter 2. Verse 2. Verses, Jesus would die for the nation. In this text. Not for ours only. Verses, not for that nation only. But for the sins of the whole world. And here at verse 52, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Very similar phrasing. Whether John in 1 John is specifically talking to Jewish believers is besides the point. They were believers and that there are other believers in the world is what he's referring to when he says the whole world. It can't be taken any other way. Because Jesus as propitiation satisfies the wrath of God on behalf of those who believe. To satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of everyone means that they would no longer have to believe. What an incredible truth that is hard sometimes for us to wrap our minds around. And I don't think many of us who understand this truth and doctrine that we've been taught over the years understand the value of the cross to its full extent many times. Do you realize that you could be lost today? You could be outside the faith today. You would hold none of this dear, this truth of the gospel that God revealed specifically to you and me. How often do you take and really step back and look at the sovereignty of God and how he's worked in your life and you can't help but say thank you? Thank you, God, for even the hard times. Thank you, God, for doing what you did to get me to see you for what you're worth. Church, I truly believe we don't have this hit our hearts as much as it should. Not a single one of us has anything to brag about because God called us to himself. It does stun me 
when arguing this point with others that many of us even pray and ask God to change things in people's lives if we believe it's up to them. God is the only one that can break the heart of stone that many people have. God is the only one that can raise the spiritually dead back to life. Parents, you need to be aware of one thing, that it's your prayer before God who is sovereign that's going to matter more than all the things that you attempt on your own. Does God hold you and I responsible in how we raise our kids? Sure does. But you also need to be reminded of the fact that God knows and he cares and he's well aware of everything going on. And this is a doctrine that's hard to struggle with sometimes. It's not easy. It's not easy as you're raising your children to know that God stands over all of eternity. He stands as the captain of salvation in here. It should humble us. Not a single one of us can stand before God in pride as if we deserved it. We don't. God never chose Israel because they deserved it. God picked an idolatrous, multiple God-worshipping Abraham to be his child. And he made of him a father of many nations. And Messiah comes through his seed. God didn't have to do it that way. But he did so because he chose to do it that way. What an incredible truth that was not just written to those John had in mind, but to all others throughout the world who have called on the name of Jesus to save. Jesus came not just to the Jewish people, but to us as Gentiles as well. We who are on the outside when God chose Israel have been brought near by the Son. God brought us near because of what Jesus has done. Not because we started following some certain rituals and religious practices. It is Jesus that brought us to the Father. Because we are his. What an incredible sacrifice. An incredible sacrifice of infinite worth. So in closing, I want to ask, how valuable is Jesus to you? How valuable is Jesus to you? Does it matter to you today that you were given forgiveness? Or have you kind of just gotten used to it? The guy kind of owes me, you know, Jesus already paid it all, so I'm owed that. Maybe Jesus isn't valuable because you haven't believed on him. That's a reality for some. If you're watching this online, maybe all of this seems foolish and ridiculous because Jesus is not your Savior. The gospel is commanded for everyone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. 
If Jesus is valuable, then dealing with sin should matter on a daily basis, believer. Should matter on a daily basis. Not a weekly, not a monthly, not a yearly, on a daily basis. Don't just wait till Sunday to take care of what you did all last week. If Jesus is valuable, then he knows my future, I don't need to worry. You see, we as believers, we worry about a lot of stuff. A lot of things that we ought not to worry about because we are really in the hand of Jesus and the Father. Did you know that? You are doubly secured. No one can take that away. If Jesus is valuable, then maybe I need to readjust my schedule to make him a priority in my life and in my family's. Maybe that's something we need to do intentionally, and it's not going to happen by chance. Maybe we can put away some things that we do for fun and go, you know what, I'm going to take this time, and it's going to be devoted and dedicated to our time with God. And it's not in a legalistic fashion, like we got to do this or else God's not going to love us. Not like that. How would you not want to know God at a more deeper personal level? How would you not want your children to strive for those things as well? Make legalism get, get out of your family's situation here. Don't, don't take that approach. Love the fact that you get to spend time with God. Don't view it as a chore. And isn't it devastating that so many of us sometimes view spending time with God as some duty and a task and not a delight? If Jesus is valuable, everything I go through by faith will be worth it one day when I see him face to face. It will be worth it one day. Believer, no matter what you're going through right now, it's worth it one day when you finally see Jesus face to face. As Paul writes in Romans 8, and we know that text well, right? Who shall separate us from the love of God? And he lists a bunch of negatives, a bunch of terrible things that happen in your life. Lots of opposition. Shall anyone lay charge to God's elect? No. It's God that justifies. You're his. He knows. Believer, this is the one I really want us to zero in on, especially this year. If Jesus is valuable, then I need to share his truth with others. Let him take care of the results. He will. You don't need to look at it as if, man, if you don't do something, God's not going to do something. God is perfectly in control. But he still wants you and me to go out, to preach the gospel, to share with others. And I'm going to tell you right now, one of the things that attracts people to somebody else is what interests them that makes them wonder. 
There are so many topics that fascinate people, and they're just in awe when someone starts speaking on something that they enjoy. Imagine if the world saw us as a church being so thrilled with the gospel, so in love with God, that they just couldn't help but ask, how, why? Why does he matter that much? Why is he so valuable to them? Also, church isn't just kind of something to do on Sundays. They love gathering with the saints. They love being in the word of God. Their family's different. It's got to be this thing that they really value God. I want to finish with this quote from Tom Wells. It says, The God who is worthy to be known and served for who he is is himself the answer to this world's longings. And those who know him best are best equipped to serve him. He is their message. If we have discovered the glory of God in the face of Christ, we must not hold back. The God of glory must be made known. 